All right, well, welcome back, everybody. Um, as I try and get my pieces all put together. Um, welcome back to Large Group. It's great to see all of you, um, and I'm glad y'all are I'm glad y'all are here. And um, gotta get all my details in place. Okay. So um, we're back uh, back at Large Group again for the. So I have good news and bad news. The semester is one third over, which yeah. So some of you rejoice at that, and some of you are like, oh my gosh, I have so much to do. And you're crushed by that. But it is what it is, and the God is faithful, and we'll get through it. Um, so it feels like we just started, to me at least, but here we are, like a third of the way done. So um, zooming right along. Anyways, um, hope you had a good day. I hope you've had a good week so far. Um, so this semester, we've been looking at the book of Philippians, if, you're, if you've been with us. And uh, we've been trying to ask the question... Over and over, you know, I, I try to open it up with this because this is a, you know, it's the 21st century on a college campus, and we're we're looking at a somewhere between a 4,000 and a 2,000 year old book, and we're trying to ask, like, does this thing? I mean, it's definitely, without a doubt, the most influential book in human history. There's no argument in that. Um, but it more than just influence, does it actually say something meaningful? Does it actually say something that we can live our lives off of that affects us during the rest of our week? Um, Does it have anything relevant to say, any sort of lasting relevance beyond just its sociological impact that it's had? And uh, I think so. I think it's more than just relevant. I think it's more than just good advice. I think it's more than just stories about good behavior that you're supposed to go do, more than just you trying to live up to David or whoever. I think there's more happening in here. Um, I think it's more than just one more perspective on how to do religion or how to be a good person. Um, We actually believe that the Bible is God's word, which is pretty incredible. That somehow, in some mysterious way, the creator of the universe actually speaks to us through this book and says something through space and time that, 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 that meets us right where we are in our moment. Um... And, and, and that's, I mean, it's, and not only is it God speaking, but it's, it's God's record of, of what he is doing and what he has done, specifically and climactically in this man, Jesus Christ, and that record of what he has done actually gives our lives meaning. It actually gives us some purpose. It gives us, it, it, it affects who you and I are. Um, and if this, true, if this is true, then I think this book is really important, really timely, and we should study it. So that's why we do this. We study this because we think this is God's word that actually tells us how to live in our lives. And so if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, um, you've been with us as we've been studying this theme of joy. We've been asking over and over again, how do we have joy in college when you're at the third, you know, the, the third or halfway through a semester and you're like, oh man, this is getting hard. I don't know if I'm happy. I don't know if I'm a joyful person right now. And uh, if, over the last couple of weeks, the last two or three weeks, we've been looking at the link between joy and community, joy and community, and uh, specifically the Christian community, the Christian community. And what I mean when I say Christian community, I mean the shared life, the shared life that you and I have around the claims of Christianity. So shared life, that means like when we get across the table from each other, we eat meals together, we talk, we do coffee, we talk about life, we're maybe even a little bit vulnerable, and that means like pulling out our earbuds 
stepping away from school and from work and actually talking to another person, engaging with them. What are their fears? What are their desires? What are their likes, their dislikes? And then we do this shared life around the claims of Christianity. This good news about Jesus Christ, the God-man, who came into our world. And so we're asking together, does this have anything to say with our world? And so you can, everyone is welcome into that. You don't have to necessarily say, I'm a Christian, to do this shared life of Christian community. You can say, I don't know where I am. I've got a lot of questions still about this Christian thing, but I'm interested. I'm curious. I have questions. Bring those questions in to this shared life together, this Christian community. And one of the major things I've been saying about this shared life is that is that the extent to the the extent of the joy that we have in our life is the the extent of our joy is related to um, it's related to how we're doing our life together. It's related to how we're doing our life together. And so, if you want to experience greater joy, there's a there's a there's a relationship, a direct correlation to how you're doing life with other people. With other people. That means get in a community of Christians. Get in a community. Throw yourself into this community, into a community of Christians where you can bring your doubts and your questions and your frustrations and your ups and your downs. As we do that, we actually begin to discover joy. And that joy and community are intimately related. And that unity and that community leads to joy. And so tonight, we're going to look at that some more. We're going to look at this idea of community and unity bringing joy into our lives, pushing back against depression and loneliness and anxiety and frustration. Um, And so we're going to interact with the text a little bit differently tonight than maybe what you're used to. We're going to read the text and then comment and then read more of the text and comment and just kind of work our way through the text. And so um, if you have the the handout with you, look to the text. um, And I'm going to read the first couple of verses here. And then we'll we'll make comment on it. So... um, this is the first, the first couple of verses of Philippians 2, chapter, one, I mean, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So we'll stop there for now, and then we'll, we'll press on in a bit. So, um, what's going on here? What's going on in, this, in, these, in these verses? And what, are they, what, is, what is basically, what is Paul saying? Well, basically what Paul is describing here is what I've been trying to describe the last, the last bit, is this shared life together, right? If you look at the text, what are the words he's saying? He's saying this shared li- what this shared life can look like. And, he's, and these, the if statements, if there's any encouragement, that functions more like since. Since there is encouragement in Christ, comfort and love, participation. And so if all those things exist within the Christian community, what do we have? We have encouragement. We have a community of comfort. We have a communication of participation, which the, another word for that is actually fellowship. Fellowship or community together or um, affection and sympathy. Like That sounds like a nice place to be in, right? That sounds like a pretty desirable community to be a part of. So he's describing, in a sense, this ideal community that we all kind of want, I think, this this shared life together. Can Can you imagine what that would be like? 
living in like an ideal community that's full of love and sympathy, comfort, and not in some sort of like hippie way, but actually people caring about you, truly, sincerely caring about you, meeting you with where you are in your day, um, where there's no dissension and there's um, love. I mean, perfect community. Can you imagine what that would be like? Imagine if you lived in a community where the people in it laughed with each other and cried with each other and encouraged each other. There's no conflict and not a single piece of selfishness or other people like trying to get their own against other people. That would be like pretty awesome, right? What would be the result of living in that kind of community? What would it, what would it be like? I, I think it would be like a pretty joyful place, honestly. And that's what, that's what he, Paul tells us. He says, look in verse 2, he says, complete my joy. So it's like, if this is happening in this community, like the, Paul's joy, he says, my joy is complete. Oh my gosh, do you see what's on offer there when he says, it? like, complete joy in community. That sounds incredible. Like, I think, honestly, at the end of the day, that's what a lot of us are actually wanting in our daily lives. Total joy in, 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 with community with other people. So how do we get that? How do we get that sort of complete joy in community, that shared life together? How do we actually start to make ourselves into that community? Well, he tells us in verse 2. Look at it again. He says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he says that this kind of community is possible how? Through unity. Like what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Through unity, we can actually have that sort of community. But then he flips it on its head and he talks about the negative. What's the sort of thing that's going to harm that? What's the sort of thing that, 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 and when he flips it, he actually starts to talk about here the threat to that sort of community. What's the thing that if, that's going to tear it apart? What's the thing that's going to rend it to pieces? Well, he tells us, and we'll press on here. Look at verse 3. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Count others as more significant than yourself. Well, what is, he, what is he saying here? He's talking about selfish ambition and conceit. And he says those two things are actually a threat to the unity, and so they're a threat to community. Selfish ambition and conceit. Now, what is, what is selfish ambition? I think most of us have some idea of what that could be, but I think I'll try and describe it. Basically, it's like a hostile lust to have it my way. A hostile lust to have things my way. My way. It's like selfish ambition basically treats the world as a zero-sum game. The pie is only so big, and if you get any, that means that I get less. And so whatever is out there, I've got to fight for what's mine. I've got to be ambitiously selfish and selfishly ambitious to get what I can. And, and like, picture, if you will, like, maybe how many of you have siblings? You get a new toy and, uh, for Christmas... And there's just one toy and there's three siblings. Like, either you get to play with the toy or you don't. You want to play with the toy. So you're going to, like, fight for that toy, right? You're like, I want the toy. I don't want them to have it. I want it. Right? I want to play with it. And so if I have to beat you down, I was the oldest, so I was really good at this. If I had to beat my little sister and brother down, I'm going to get that toy. 
That's what selfish ambition in here. And, and, and conceit, that's sort of, it's the same thing. It's like conceit is like this vain, futile, selfish compulsion. Like, I just gotta, I just gotta get what I need. I gotta get what I need. And it's just sort of vain. It's sort of empty. It's kind of like trying to bottle the sunshine. You can try. We desperately try to do it, but it's never going to work out. And together, these two, selfish ambition and conceit, they represent this deep-seated desire, like this lust to have it my way. What do we say? My way or the highway, right? My way or the highway. It's either you're either going to do it my way or we're not going to do it at all. And I think both of these, it's a proud declaration for my priorities, my obligations, my goals are more important than yours and definitely more important than the communities. Definitely more important than the communities. And it is the height of arrogance which utterly destroys that community. Do you see what, how that happens? Where this, com- where this community is just torn apart by everybody trying to get what's theirs. And it robs us of joy and it isolates us into little silos of ourself because we're basically like, i got to get mine, even if it means i got to climb over everybody else to get it. So we're just isolated into ourself. And at the heart of all of it, it, we have a a word for this, right? It's pride. It's pride. And it's the declaration that my plans, my needs, my desires are most important. They're the most important thing in the whole world, more important than than anything else. And here's the shocking fact. Here's the shocking fact. We all do this. We all do this. Some of you might be thinking, wait, Jonathan, I'm not that bad. Like, sure, I may have days or I may have moments where I'm like, eh, it was kind of rude to my roommate. But I'm nothing like what you've just described of selfish ambition and conceit. And I would argue that in our heart of hearts, actually, we are. Like in our deepest heart, we actually are. Like think about it and look what verse 4 says. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And I think really at the end of the day, it's like looking to our own interests, it means crushing or ignoring others for our own interests. I think we do that. At least I know I do. I know that I lump myself into this. I'm ashamed to admit that I do this with like my best friend. I do this with my wife all the time. I do this with my friends. How many times do I like, when I'm on campus, do I see someone who I know and I'm like, I can't talk to them. I got to keep walking. I got stuff to do. So I just like put my sunglasses on, put my butt earbuds in, and I just keep right on going because I have my plans. I've got my agenda. That's me putting my goals over connecting with another human being. And I'm like, and I put a Jesus spin on it. I'm like, well, I got a pastor. I've got a Jesus business to do on campus. Look how dark my own heart is in the midst of that. How many times do we hide behind our earphones to avoid conversations or do you ignore texts and Snapchats because you have to do school? What I'm trying to say here is that I think each of us in greater or lesser ways, we deny others love, we even climb over and hurt others for our own goals and we, because they're a threat to our agenda. And so when that happens, boy, it just starts to crumble around us. We start to break community. We start to break unity and we get... We just destroy joy, right? We just end up destroying the joy that we're trying so hard to get. So, if this is what we all do, is there actually a solution? Is there actually hope for this? 
Is there hope for us? Is there hope for community? Is there hope for deep, sustainable joy, what we've been talking about all semester? And this is where the gospel is amazing news because it says, yes, absolutely, there actually is hope in the midst of this. If pride is the poison to community and joy, then humility is the medicine for it. Humility is the medicine that actually begins to build up community and joy. Paul tells us, he says, if you want joy, if you want community in everything that I've described in this ideal community, if you want encouragement, love, fellowship, if you want all that, you have to put away your pride and humble yourselves. And what does he say? Seek the interests of others. Seek the interests of others. That's the only way. Humility is the solution to actually getting joy and unity in our lives that we all really want. Now, here's the thing. Here's where it gets interesting. I could stop right there and just send you all out and say, okay, now go be humble people. I could just send you out and say, okay, that's it. That's a wrap. Go be humble people now. Stop being proud. Start being humble. And that would be a great motivational seminar, right? You'd go out and be like, yeah, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be more humble. I'm going to be a humble person this week. I'm in doing that. I'm going I'm to seek joy and community with those around me. And I would say, like, that'd be great for about a week, maybe, if you're really disciplined. But I think eventually you'd start to just, like, chip away at you again, right? And you'd start your own desires and your own pride would start to chip away. And you'd see that humility is actually really hard. It's a really hard thing to pursue. You can't just walk out the door and be a more humble person. You can't just go fix yourself like that. You need something more. If I just sent you out and said, go be humble... I would be condemning you to an incredibly frustrating month. (laughs) And then I think I would be condemning you to despair. Because you couldn't do it, right? You couldn't do it. We don't even know how to get off YouTube, let alone be humble people when we need to. Right? So it starts, what starts out as like a motivational speech to go be humble would end up crushing us. It would crush you and it would crush me. And it would, boy, it would send us right back into the joyless despair that we started out with, right? So is there actually hope in this? That wouldn't be good news if I just said, go out and be humble. And here's the good news. Christianity doesn't, it doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just say, go be a better person. It gives us so much more. Christianity is good news because it does not say, go out and try harder. Christianity is totally different. It does not say, go out and try harder. Well, let's see what it does say. Let's pick up here at verse 5. And see what it says. Verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, These verses are incredibly dense. In fact, fun fact, these are the most commented verses in the entire Bible. Like, we could spend five weeks dissecting this. This is amazingly dense, but I'm going to try and summarize it. And it's this. Verse 5, it tells us that we who follow Christ, we are called to imitate him. And then it shows us what that looks like. And it shows us how Christ is not just something that we model. It's not someone we imitate, but he's actually the one who goes before us. And he actually, in going before us, gives us the power to be humble. What does this mean? Well, first, look what it says in verse 6. It says, 
Christ, who was in the form of God. Well, what does this mean? It means that Christ, Jesus Christ, was God himself. He was, the, he, was, he was and is the second person of the Trinity. He was not some human being who somehow God said, I'll pick that one and I'm going to make him do my special task. No, Jesus Christ was God himself who became man. Though he was the form of God, that means he was the very essence of God. Though he was God himself, what does it say? He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? It means that he willingly gave up all the privileges, all the rights and, of divinity. He laid them aside. He said, I could have the whole universe because I made it. I'm God. He says, I'm not going to do that. And he lays them aside. He, consider, he, doesn't consider themselves some, he doesn't consider it something to be grasped, but he gives it up. How many of you have a dream car? A dream car, maybe it's a Bugatti, maybe it's a Lamborghini. Mine is a, um, it's basically a Toyota Hilux. They're the best car in the world. Um, I, it's a dream car. They're not legal in the States. But, so imagine that you had, imagine that you had this dream car and then you gave it up. That's what Christ does. He has everything that he could have wanted in it, and he gives it up. It's not like he has, it's not like the keys are dangling at him. He's grasping at him like that. No, he has the keys in his own hand. They're his. It's his car. And he says, I don't need this. And he gives it up. That's what, that's what it means. What Christ did is the difference between grasping at keys that you don't have and releasing the keys that you already had. Christ gave up all the rights and privileges of divinity it's not something that he wanted and tried to get. He had it, but he gave it up. And what does it say next? It says he emptied himself. He poured himself out. He emptied himself. And that doesn't mean that Christ stopped being God. Every bit of his life on earth, he was God the whole time. But he veiled it. He emptied himself of his divinity to be a human being. It means that he gave up all the honor and the glory and the delight. And what does it say? It says he took the form of a servant. He took the form of a servant. Think about that, y'all. This is God himself becoming human and then becoming a servant human, becoming a low human being. He didn't come and become a king on earth. He became a normal human being, a servant even. This is like a king Who's, who, who over a whole country saying, no, I, don't, I'm, I could be king, I am king, but I'm just going to be a servant. I'm going to be a slave. In fact, that's the word here in the original. He says he becomes a slave. In the, in the theological world, we call this the incarnation, which literally means like the enfleshment, God becoming flesh, taking on flesh. But not, that's not it. It's, you see what's happening here. God is doing this. He's stepping down. He's humbling himself lower and lower and lower. Okay, so he's now he's at the form of a servant. But he doesn't stop there. What does it say? He went lower. It says he died. God himself died. And not only did he die, he died in the most painful and humiliating way that any human being could die. He died on the cross. And the Romans, boy, they had perfected it. They had it down. You've probably heard it means you hung out on a cross. You're naked. You're in front of a bunch of people who are mocking you. He has nails driven through his side and you basically asphyxiate to death. And it took hours. Like the most 
painful death. So here is Christ, God himself, experiencing the worst pain, the worst depression, the worst isolation, all the guilt, all the shame. God himself experiencing all that. Do you see what's happening here? God himself who deserves all honor and praise, humbling himself. Ultimate majesty taking ultimate humility. It does not get any more extreme than what's happening here. This was the most humble act in the entire universe. God himself dying. But it doesn't stop there, does it? The story doesn't stop there. There's stories, if you read in the stories about Jesus' life, which are called the Gospels, it says that somehow Jesus, miraculously, he comes back to life, which is an incredible claim. And I'm sure some of you have questions about it. I'd love to talk with you about it. If you're like, man, no way, dead people don't come back to life. We should talk about it. There's actually incredible, true historical proof that it probably happened, like almost surely happened. But that's what, that's what Paul tells us here. He says, therefore, verse 9, God has what? Exalted him, has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see what's happening here? He's doing this all the way down to here. And then what happens? He goes even higher so that every single name will know, every person will know and confess who Jesus is. Glory to ultimate humility to even greater glory. Do you see what's happening there? Every knee will bow. And that's a challenge. And a little side note, that's a challenge to all of us. Every knee, that includes you and me. One day when Christ returns, we will bow whether or not we like it or not. There's more to be said on that, but I won't say it. But what I want us to focus on here is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate act of humility. He's the ultimate act of humility. Jesus is the ultimate motto of what he's talking about here, of putting personal interests aside and of seeking the interests of others. Do you see what, he's saying, what Paul is saying here? But not only is he the ultimate model of humility that we should emulate, but he's the perfect power of humility. And this is where, this is so important, this is where it actually begins to shift from the motivational speech that you have to do to something that actually gets done to you. So I don't just send you out and say, go be humble. Here's what I mean. If Jesus Christ was really God, if he really died and really rose to life, and if by faith we are united to him, then that means other parts of Scripture tell us that we get the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, Jesus tells us, is the helper. He helps us, Christians. He helps us in our faith. He helps us in our life. So that means that being a Christian, it's not on you. It doesn't mean that you've got to drum it up. You've got to dig up the motivation to humble yourself. It means that God himself in the third person of the, whole, of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is at work in you. Even if you don't feel it. That God himself is at work in you and he's actually making you more humble. That you cooperate with the Holy Spirit. So it's not on you. It's actually grace that God comes in and says, believe in what Jesus has done. I send my Holy Spirit into you and we work on this together. You become a more humble person. Hear me say this. God is more committed to your humility, to your joy, to your flourishing than you ever will be. You hear that? God is more committed to your joy 
He's more committed to your humility. He's more committed to your flourishing than you ever will be. We join in what He's already been doing. And this means, this is incredible, it means that you and I can actually become more humble people. And then the dominoes start rolling. Just like I said, if we come, start becoming more humble people, what happens? We start serving one another. We start becoming a community. We start becoming united. We start becoming joyful. Do you see what's happening? When we start with what Christ has done, we start with believing in what Christ has done. Oh my gosh, it can, it can cascade out into actually becoming that ideal community that Paul is talking about. By meditating on His love for you. Remember, He died for you. By filling yourself with His love, then we can actually become imitators of Christ in His humility. We can go love each other and we can become more joyful. Do you see what that, do you see how that's good news? Do you see that's why we call it the gospel? It's not about you going out and trying harder. It's about believing what God has already done for you. The gospel does not say try harder to serve others. It says you can't do it, but Jesus did it all. He did the most humbling thing in the entire universe. And by believing him, you actually become a more humble person. And we start to become joyful. It all starts with Jesus. It starts with filling our minds with what Jesus has done. So I've been going on for a while. Um, I just want to wrap up real quick and say, what do we see in this passage? Well, there's a ton here. But first and foremost, I want us to see that Jesus Christ, who is God and man at the same time, he shows us what ultimate humility is. He shows us this incredible downward motion and then this incredible exalting rise of what humility is in. And then we see that we're actually called to be humble to one another. And that's hard work. It's not easy. But you're not in it alone. The Holy Spirit comes in and joins you. And when that happens, man, joy starts to happen in community. Not just you on your own being joyful, but actually joy in community. That ideal joy that we've talked about. So if this is true, I'll just wrap up with this. If this is true, how does your week look different? How do you go out a different person from when you came out? How does this affect your life? Well, first of all, be challenged by Christ's example of perfect humility. Be challenged by it. Don't just be like, oh yeah, that's a good example. Be, like, actually let it hit you. Let it hit who you are and challenge you. Think about that. The example that he set for us. But then don't just do that. Let it spur you to greater humility. Service. Love. Koinonia fellowship. Encouragement. That idea that we've been talking about. And ask yourself, how can I serve and look towards the interests of others this week? How can I let the Holy Spirit work in me to be more serving and loving so that we can be a joyful community? I've gone on for a long time, so I'll stop there. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thanks for this word. Thanks for this text. Thank you, Lord, that it, man, it hits us right where we are in the middle of Las Cruces, New Mexico in 2018. Um, Father, we need your help because we admit that we are a proud people, that we look to our own interests against others, and that it, it hamstrings our community, it hamstrings joy. So, Father, we pray that your spirit would show us Help us to see what Christ has done and inspire us to be more humble people that love you and love others better. Do that in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.